This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. Today's episode is about cognitive cultural studies, and we are here with Torsha Koshal. Torsha, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I am an assistant professor of English at California State University, Sacramento, with research and teaching interests in cognitive cultural studies, narrative theory, global anglophone literature, and also multimodality and comparative media studies. My latest research focuses on the relationship between the aesthetic presentation of thought and scientific conceptions of cognition. Thank you so much, Tosha, for coming to High Theory. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we don't do episodes on entire fields very often, so I'm really excited to ask you my first question, which is, what the heck are cognitive cultural studies? I'm glad you used the plural because it's so difficult to define a field. Actually, it's not even one field. It's a mix of fields. I like to think of cognitive cultural studies as a group of approaches that try to better understand the relationship of thought, perception, emotions, as well as meta discourses or theories around various aspects of cognition with culture and cultural objects. The desire to understand thought and its relation with culture is, of course, not restricted to the field or fields we are calling cognitive cultural studies, and not all cultural and literary critics studying this relationship between mind and culture would identify themselves as doing cognitive studies. In fact, I think for a long time, and perhaps even now, Criticism in the psychoanalytic vein also attempts to think about the relationship of mind with culture. To me, thus, cognitive cultural studies has a somewhat historically specific connotation. You know, many of these approaches within cognitive cultural studies are working with or explicitly working against conceptions of mind popularized by the cognitive sciences the interdisciplinary field originating in the mid-20th century. 
Right. If you can give us a sense of what that scholarly formation is very briefly. So the cognitive sciences, uh, or what we call the cognitive sciences now, those can be traced back to computer sciences and cybernetics around, say, the 1940s, 50s. The early preoccupation of the cognitive sciences was not so much what is mind, what is human mind or animal mind or any of that, but really cognitive sciences were trying to model artificial intelligence. And so they were interested in the human mind as a model for artificial intelligence. So basically, they were interested in understanding thought because then, you know, they could artificially construct a thinking machine. Of course, Alan Turing is the popular, well-known figure who thinks through and works with these ideas. There are many others, his contemporaries. Now, cognitive sciences starts there, but of course, the field evolves to take into account issues around embodiment, then the role of environments in thinking, of course, affect, and many other things. So today, the cognitive sciences are bringing together studies of language, linguistics, culture, and neuroscience, computer sciences, and so on. So I guess it's becoming more and more difficult to define what cognitive sciences are, but it helps to keep in mind its origin in this question or desire to model artificial intelligence after the human mind. How do we use cognitive cultural studies? So... I come from literature, and so the way I approach it is the way a literary scholar can approach it. Right. So my interest in cognitive cultural studies is tied to my interest, first and foremost, in literary objects, literary experiences, their forms and content. So as a graduate student, I was intrigued by works of scholars like Monica Flutternig, David Herman, Marco Caracciolo, among many others, who in conversation with the cognitive sciences and philosophy of mind, made speculative but persuasive claims about how we read, how we experience stories. I did always still had an uneasy relationship with the hypothetical figure of a reader they would construct in cognitive studies. Mm. So for them to say that this is how we read stories, they were assuming who this we is, right? And the assumptions we come across very often in some of the earlier cognitive cultural studies work is that the reader is a very normative and universal figure. And then there is a kind of irony in it where, say, a critic is writing about how a reader is reading a character who the story has said uh, implicitly or explicitly has some kind of cognitive difference or disability. And the critic is making claims about how a reader is responding to the character with the assumption that the reader could not and would not share the character's cognitive condition. You know, so there is an ableist dynamic in it. Because of my uneasiness with that dynamic, which I found in cognitive, cultural and literary criticism, I started becoming interested in the intellectual history of the cognitive models, how 
stories participate in that intellectual history, of course, as well as how those of us studying stories are actively involved in shaping that intellectual history. In that sense, what a literary scholar can bring to cognitive studies is that in our field, we historicize things, we look at things within particular cultural context, and a literary scholar can contextualize much of cognitive sciences instead of taking things that cognitive sciences is saying about the human mind today as a trans-historical and universal fact that cannot be questioned or refuted. I think this would be a good point to ask you about your forthcoming book, which is called Out of Mind, Mode, Mediation and Cognition in 21st Century Narrative. So the book thinks about how narratives mediate knowledge about cognition. And simultaneously, the book also thinks about how scholars of narrative engage with that knowledge presented in narratives, as well as with other kinds of popular and scientific discourses around us. So it is a book that is both a work of literary criticism, but also self-reflexive about its own relationship with the methodologies it is using, the theories it is using, especially from cognitive studies. The book is shaped around certain modes and metaphors that I found to be really prevalent when people are talking about or trying to describe thinking. So going back to the origins of cognitive sciences, for instance, where they were trying to model artificial intelligence after the human mind, at that time, a very popular understanding or notion was that the human mind is a digital computer. Right. Now, we see that understanding uh, enter the popular culture and influence a lot of popular depictions of characters, as well as how we talk about particular characters, even if the story itself doesn't make a claim that the character thinks like a computer. Right. So one aspect of my book thinks about how this understanding of mind as computer has influenced popular understandings and also stigma around autism. Mm. So uh, what I'm thinking of, for example, is if you have seen the very popular show Big Bang Theory, the character of Sheldon Cooper acts as though he is very mechanical, not the best at social communication and so on. And he is that stereotype, essentially, of this person whose mind is working like a computer. Mm. And we also have characters like Oscar from Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Jonathan Safran Foer, who explicitly says in the book that my mind is a computer. So I think about how constructions of autism happen with that initial metaphor. Some other metaphors and modes that I talk about in the book are maps, mapping, cartography, Mm. archive, thinking of memory as archive, how that influences the way not only we think about remembering, but also the way we think about forgetting, and especially what this kind of archival thinking can do for us a given environmental crisis. But the broad idea the book constantly goes back to is this intellectual history of how we come to think about thinking a particular way. Mm. And one of the questions that you're grappling with here is, 
if I'm getting your meaning correctly, mm -hmm. but how responsible it is in the first place to think about the human mind as a computer, especially standing right now in the history of artificial intelligence, if we have to think about the emotive capabilities of the mind, given that we are facing several world-consuming crises all at once. So given all of this, given this situation, let me ask you my final question, which is, how will cognitive cultural studies save the world? Oh, that question is certainly very intimidating. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think to me, that is really, really important to understand that what we know about mind, what we know about thinking is very historically and culturally contingent on lots right. of different yeah. factors. And also that uh, what we think about thinking changes, has the potential to change. The potential to change gives me hope because in that case, there are possibilities. There are ways in which we can think generatively, which may help mitigate some of the crisis we are facing today. Right. Cognitive cultural studies, at the end of the day, is one way of putting the aesthetic, the scientific, technological, and the social in dialogue with one another which I think is necessary because of the extent to which the technological gets to dominate any conversation about thought, thinking, or about anything else today, I guess. Uh -huh. yeah. And cognitive cultural studies can over there historicize our understandings of how minds work by drawing attention to the variables it can prevent us from enshrining very contingent explanatory models as norms. Whenever these norms are constructed, they are very often used to profile or pathologize yeah. anybody who doesn't fit those norms. But cognitive cultural studies can show that these norms themselves are constructed and are subject to change. So I think that's how cognitive cultural studies can really impact the way we think and the way we think about thinking. Brilliant. Tosha, thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us. Thank you. Thank you, Sharonik. This was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for the questions. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.